Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 89. We heard last episode how Operation Modular had begun and how FAPLA's 21st Brigade had been stopped from crossing the Lomba River by Major Hannes Nortmann and his squadron of rattles using the experimental ZRT-3 rockets in early September 1987. This was happening along a river where the approaches were a mix of tropical grasslands and riverine bush that was almost impenetrable. Despite a raid by MiGs, which bombarded the area shortly after the failed ground assault by the 21st Brigade, the SADF had managed to drive back all of Fapler's attempts at reaching the south bank of the Lomba. But a bigger challenge lay to the west, where Fapler's 47th Brigade had managed to circumvent the river and the wetlands and had now turned eastwards to face Mavinga and the SADF. The date? September 11th, 1987. South Africa's artillery kept up a constant fire towards the retreating 21st Brigade and Fapler's commanders there could be heard on radio ordering a general withdrawal along with phrases like annihilation when referring to the condition of their men. The SADF artillery had managed to hold up 47 Brigade after they had wheeled east from their southwards march. Fapler then sent a vanguard of PT-76 amphibious light tanks forward in a reconnaissance mission, while half a dozen T-54-55s hung around between the advanced recon party and their brigade headquarters further to the west. This was an ideal moment for an SADF intervention, thought Major Hotsleaf. He wanted to attack the two forward enemy battalions with two infantry companies from 101 Battalion on board their Casper armoured cars. They would be supported by eight Rattle 90s and four Rattle ZT3s with ammunition, with artillery adding to the firepower. The area around the south of the Lomba River is a little bit like the Okavango Swamp with less water. The bush is dense, a veritable grassland jungle on a flood plain, tropical suddenness infused with wetland and moments later dusty sandy grassland. Once in the thick bush, the South Africans realized they could only see around 20 meters into the foliage. Their visibility had been significantly reduced. We preferred mobile warfare, said Captain Danny Crowther, who spoke to Leopold Skoltz later. We would rather move to a point where we attack and be able to move out quickly and never get dug in. Fapla were dug in. They had two days to prepare for any SADF assault, which they knew was on its way. Fapla soldiers had dug quickly through the soft ground and created hidden trenches and foxholes. The Rekis were experiencing challenges trying to locate exactly where the 1547 Brigade troops were hiding out. There was a general area where the Brigade was presumed to be, and Bravo Combat Group Commander Major Robbie Hotsliff ordered his artillery to soften up Fapla with a heavy bombardment. By now, a few hundred UNITA troops were also available as reinforcements. As this combat group advanced, they managed to squeeze a large section of Fapla's 47 Brigade against the Lomba River, then, during a short and intense assault, with rattles firing their much-feared anti-personnel grapeshot from the 90mm and the Caspers spraying the area with machine guns, more than a hundred Fapla were killed. It was time for the South Africans to move forward, and everything was going well until they ran into the tanks. While reconnaissance had reported at least a dozen T-54-55s, as well as these amphibious tanks were snooping around, it was always a shock to face a tank in the bush, particularly when you can only see around 20 metres ahead. The inadequate 90mm rattle gun was almost useless against the thick hulls of this Russian tank, with South African commanders reporting later they had to fire eight rounds before there was any effect on the T-54-55s. 
By now, the South Africans were doing what the Germans had done against the T-34s. They were firing at the precise point between the hull and the tank turret, an area of a couple of inches. Of course, the Angolans were firing back. What made this fight even more uneven, at least on paper, was that the rattles could not fire while moving, whereas the T-54-55s could. It was a feat of training and close-quartered tactics that five of these feared tanks were hit and put out of action. The SADF lost three rattles, which bogged down. Support engineers then managed to pull them out of the midst of the battle. These tanks were heavy weapons of the first order, and the SADF had nothing in place at the Lombo to really deal with them. One of the T-54-55 skirted the South Africans and headed towards the combat group's headquarters, firing on the SADF support vehicles. Commandant Bert Saxa was wounded. He'd been sent to help with Junita liaison. Now he was manned down. Another tank suddenly appeared in the midst of the SADF, firing at Major Hartsleaf's section, just missing a rattle on his right. Then it fired at an ambulance behind, but missed both. Hartsleaf was facing this T-54-55 head on, his rattle at a standstill and a sitting duck. The tank suddenly veered off to the left, showing its fragile flank to Hartsleaf's gunner, who fired four shots at the heavy Russian machine. Three missed the tank as it crunched through the bush. The camouflage used by the Angolans was excellent, making it even more difficult to hit. The first round hit the ground in front of the tank, spewing dust. The second went over the top. The third landed ahead. Then the fourth was a bull's eye. Incredibly, nothing happened at first. The tank seemed impervious and kept going. Hotsleaf said afterwards, we fired another six, altogether seven, bull's eyes on the tank, of which two penetrated the turret. The tank started burning and the crew jumped out. Hartsleaf's machine gunner shot them down. The South Africans were in a bit of a pickle. The tanks had the upper hand, at least when it came to firepower. But the SADF rattle units were better trained and they had the additional advantage of a tighter turn ratio despite the tank tracks. This turned into learning-on-the-job stuff. As the battle developed inside this dense bush, rattles began to outturn the T-54-55s. The tactic was pretty jaw-dropping. The rattle would rush past the tank, but too close for proper firing, then turn and attack them from the rear. The T-54-55s rear armor was 20mm thick, whereas it was more like 80mm at the front. That's almost a meter of iron, and the 90mm cannon could not penetrate. Fapler's tanks also began to turn, leading to a kind of heavy metal pirouette between these two major tools of war, the rattle and the T-54-55, a kind of terrible tango to the death. Jan Breitenbach actually called this the dance of death. Two more rattles then reported difficulties. In one, a driver was screaming about being surrounded. Nordmann jumped out of the rattle armed with an R-5 rifle and charged towards the first stricken rattle. Behind him was a recovery vehicle, but when he arrived, he saw nothing could be done. It was on fire. The direct hit from a T-54-55 had passed through the right-hand door, killed the driver instantly, then bounced out through the front window. Captain Mac McCullum and six of his men inside this rattle died when they were hit by the T-54-55 armor-piercing round. Pieces of the destroyed rattle remain at this spot to this day. Nordmann then ran towards a secondary stationary rattle, call sign 13 Alpha, which had hit a tree trunk. The engine was running and the doors were open, but it had been abandoned. He called for a recovery vehicle, 
wondering what had happened. And as he walked to the other side of the rattle, he spotted Fapla boots under the door moments before the enemy soldier fired at him. He fired back on full automatic, killing the man. Another was inside, grabbing Kit that was lying around, and Nortman shot at him as well. The soldier turned and fled. Nortman's round smacked into the food tins the enemy soldier had in the bag on his back. Then he was down. Moments later, combat group Charlie rolled up in support. The fight then progressed for the rest of the day. Eventually word reached the wary South Africans that six more tanks were seen heading their way. 101 Battalion began to withdraw when they received this news, so Hartsleaf decided to live to fight another day and ordered a general withdrawal. The battle group retreated to lick its wounds. The surge of these battle tanks had shaken the South Africans. This was a case of the SADF taking a knife to a gunfight. Members of 101 Battalion were enraged and said they were being used as cannon fodder, and a few days later, almost 50 of these men resigned, although the SEDF said they were released from service. They also pointed out they no longer wanted to fight as UNITA mercenaries. It was the evening of the 13th of September. Seven SADF soldiers were dead, seven others wounded. One rattle was lost, along with two Caspers. Five Fapler tanks were burning and about 300 of these soldiers lay dead. But they still had a huge weight in both numbers and material advantage over the SADF to the east. Who would make the next move on the Lomba? 47 Brigade had halted the advance on Mavinga. It had dug in south of the Lomba wetlands. For the first time in this border war, a long fight developed here, a fight that was going to last at least two weeks. Operation Modular Commander Ferreira wanted to try another direct assault on 47 Brigade to hurl them backwards. He turned to Kuba Smith's combat battle group Alpha as the main force. Hartsleaf was ordered to head back east just in case 21 Brigade, along with 16 Brigade, tried to cross the Lomba for a second time. And that, folks, is exactly what they were planning. So Smith led battle group Alpha, which was really 61 Mechanized Battalion, and it was a few days earlier that Pretoria had told all senior officers that Alpha could not be deployed against what they called general targets. Army Commander Kat Liebenbach had said that he personally would give the order to send Alpha to battle and made it clear that 61 Mech would only be sent in for what he called the proper confirmation of a defined objective. Defeating 47 Brigade was apparently the objective, although usually it was a point or a town or something. Pretoria was meddling in operational and tactical decisions for a number of reasons. It was under extreme pressure about Namibia and its own internal uprising back home and had very little room for politically charged error. The PW Buddha government was also still laboring under the illusion they could somehow spin their way out of being in southern Angola at all. The SADF officers at the front scoffed at this obvious silliness. Everyone was wandering around going nudge nudge wink wink. The Russians had proof South Africans were involved, including bits of Valkyrie rocket parts which UNITA did not use. Plausible deniability only works when there's no information. But of course, Pretoria was more interested in convincing its own people back home that it was avoiding sending its young men to die on UNITA's behalf, rather than convincing the international community of the truth or not. It's a bit like what Moscow is doing in eastern Ukraine, and started doing in 2013 and 14, using their troops to assist the breakaway Donbass and other regions, then lying about it, keeping their home fires happy, so to speak. Who cares what anyone else thinks? However, 
This is a politically schizophrenic strategy and liable to receive shock treatment. In approaching 47 Brigade's defensive position, Commandant Smith knew they'd dug in facing an attack expecting to come from the south and the east, at least he hoped so. He decided to pull off a swinging flanking attack, marching past Fapla's southern flank, then doubling back to hit them in the rear from the west. What the South Africans didn't seem to realize was that Fapla had fought the SAD for long enough to know that their enemy loved to create the impression of an attack from where they launched, only to slip around the back door. They expected the attack from the back. The date for the assault on 47 Brigade was set for 16th September. But a phenomenal equalizer was in the way, called the Angolan Riverine Bush. This is thick stuff, thicker than any bush Smith had fought in before. His battalion was drawn up for a quick march, but they ended up arriving at Fapla's positions well after midday instead of dawn. As you'll hear, they had apparently missed the boat and the SA Air Force, because they had conducted their first sortie at 0545, opening their air offensive with a combined strike against 47 Brigade's presumed position. Dropping 100 Mark 82 pre-frag devices. These are a hefty 250 kilograms each and were modified American Mark 82 bombs. The casing had been altered to allow larger diameter ball bearings to be squeezed in and these balls could penetrate lightly armored personnel carriers. Commandant Johann Rankin led one of these attacks and he was wary because by now reconnaissance and drone flights had picked out Russian SA-6 and SA-8 missiles in the area. Despite this, Rankin hurtled in for the Fergui, the far throw technique bomb run, low level, rise up to release the ordnance, sink back to low level, and the bomb arcs across the sky like a deadly sine wave. After the release, the Mirages would pull a 130 degree bank and drop to low level to avoid the missiles. Rankin duly released his bombs and rolled back towards ground, then heard on his radio that a number of the missiles were actually heading his way. He spotted numerous smoke trails that were clearly coming towards his mirage. He fixated on the danger and for a few moments stopped flying the mirage. It dropped towards the ground, approaching the speed of sound, and at the last minute he saw the treetops out of the corner of his eye, rolled horizontally and pulled back, and the mirage was about to hit the trees when the foliage parted like the Red Sea, and he plunged straight into an open area, Ashona. The extra 50 feet saved his life, although Rankin left a plume of dust in the Shona, and then he made a beeline back to Ondangwa. The MiGs were nowhere to be seen. It was only a few days before this operation that the SA Air Force pilots were going to receive a clear indication that the Angolan Air Force had changed their modus operandi. They were now both hunting each other. A few days before the assault, SAF was Commandant Carlo Gargiano and Captain Anton van Rensburg had found themselves in a dogfight against two MiGs in their mirages. As the aircraft vectored towards the bogies, Gargiano had asked for a height check so they could climb above the MiGs. He and van Rensburg jettisoned their empty drop tanks, and moments later they had the two MiG-23s visual. Van Rensburg managed to turn onto the tail of one of the Russian planes, which spiraled down as he attacked firing two Matra 550 missiles. The first exploded behind the enemy plane, causing no damage, while the second also seemed to go off too early. Gagiano and Van Rensburg headed back to Air Force Base Rundu, and the MiGs turned for home. This was a big moment for all involved. On the South African side, they were more confident about fighting these MiGs, 
and on the Angolan side, they were more confident about fighting the Mirages. From now on, the South Africans were far more worried about the SA6s and 8s, and for good reason. And little did Gagiano know he'd face off against MiGs sooner rather than later. Back on the ground, the South Africans and Fapla were now into week two of this battle for the Lomba, with neither side managing to seize the initiative. Fapla wasn't giving up further east either. Suddenly, on the 19th of September, 21 Brigade made another run for the southern bank of the Lomba River, and at the same place they'd failed previously. The SADF were monitoring their radio and knew that Papala was coming, so pulled their limited force back south of the crossing point just in time to avoid the heavy Angolan artillery barrage. Hundreds of Papala troops backed by armoured vehicles and tanks once more tried to cross the river, but waiting for them were the G5 and Valkyrie mobile rocket launcher sections, which lay down at counter barrage. The second attempt at crossing failed. Papala pulled back once more. 21 Brigade had been so badly mauled they were told to hand over their heavy weapons and supplies to the reinforcement brigade called 59 and then withdraw from the lumber. So, as Combat Group Alpha tried to outflank Brigade 47, most of the Angolans had now pulled out of their tenuous position and as Smith's Alpha Group rolled into the empty set of trenches, he later radioed, he believed a mortar section was all that had been taken out. But he also said, his men could not see a thing. Navigation in Angola is difficult, and in the thick bush without GPS, the challenges mounted. Then a South African was killed, and armored car squadron leader Major Pete Cloutier was wounded, along with two other soldiers. Ferreira had a good think about matters, and when Kuba Smith asked for Combat Battle Group Alpha to be allowed to call off the attack, he granted permission. Both sides now reconsidered their next moves. Things, though, were developing in the air war. On the morning of the 27th September, 1987, a reconnaissance sortie was flown, escorted by three squadron, over the Lomba River. Then, at 1530, three pairs of Mirage F-1CZ scrambled for a MiG intercept. Once again, Carlo Gagiano was in the air, along with Arthur Piercy, Pierre Duplessis, Frank Tonkin, Rudy Mess, and Jaco de Beer. The first two Mirages were going to set up a holding point, while last pair, Mess and De Beer, were vectored 40 degrees off to the left by radar. They were going to be the cut-off aircraft, should the other MiGs try to attack. Gagiano and Piercy were the main intercept pair. They pitched up, heading towards the MiGs, and approaching the enemy planes head-on, they dropped their tanks as they were about to reach the enemy planes. Gagiano spotted one and hit his push-to-talk button and said, SU-22, correction, MiG-23. The Mirage pilots turned left while the MiGs did the same. They were conducting their own aerial version of the ground forces' dance of death. One of the MiGs managed to get into a good position and let fly with three front sector AM-8 missiles. One was picked up on Gagiano's camera gun film, passing just over his canopy. The other two headed Piercy's way. One missed, but the other exploded alongside his left side, near the tailpipe. Piercy then dropped to tree level and fortunately the two MiGs disappeared. Gagiano joined up with Piercy, who now had his hands full coping with hydraulic failure and leaking fuel. Gagiano flew alongside Piercy's Mirage and said over the radio, Arthur, you've had your tail feathers ruffled. It's what Brigadier General Dick Lord called the understatement of the war. As they approached Rundu, Piercy realized that his drag parachute had been shot off and that fuel was leaking from holes on the right side of the Mirage. 
His hydraulics were gone. There were no brakes, and he was now using the emergency throttle to coax this plane home. So now, this is where the rush to set up Rundu's airfield for the use by Mirages was going to backfire. Remember last episode I explained they didn't have time to set up any form of arrestor barrier. Engineers claimed there wasn't enough electrical power available for their tools. This was going to have grave consequences for the pilot. And so, PSC headed back to the short airfield on a wing and a prayer. He had no chute, he had no brakes, he had no arrestor barrier. But now he was going to try and save the plane. He couldn't control the fighter jet properly, but somehow managed to line up for final at Rundu. Then came in too fast. He hit the runway. Perhaps it's best to describe this as a crash, because the force of the hit caused his ejection seat to fire, and he was thrown out of the cockpit. But the mirage was on the ground, and that is just not enough time to deploy a parachute. PSC's seat hit the ground with a chute in the process of opening, and when emergency crews reached him, he was still strapped in. He had shattered his lower spine. He was now a paraplegic. It was a somber SAFOS group that faced a terrible fact. The technological advantage in the war in Angola now lay in the hands of the enemy. A new order was issued from that day that for the foreseeable future, Three Squadron was restricted to base defense and escort duties. The SA Air Force rethought its tactics, led by Commandant Mossi Basson, who was an X-1 Squadron pilot. He knew the South Africans had to change their air combat maneuvering program in order to face the SAM-7 and SAM-8 missiles. His first act was to ask Pretoria to buy the latest Matra Magic missiles for the Mirage, but sanctions meant this was out of the question. Then, on the 28th of September, President B.W. Boota flew to Mavinga to meet the SADF leadership of 20th Brigade in an attempt at shoring up UNITA's resolve. It was following this visit that the battle really took off. Colonel Ferreira was ordered to direct all his forces at Fapla's 47 Brigade starting on the 3rd of October. Hundreds of troops from 61 Mech and Golf Company of 3-2 Battalion, along with 50 rifles in three lines, were going to cause panic when they descended on Fapla's 47th Brigade. Folks, this is possibly one of the most remarkable battles fought in Africa through the 20th century, and is thought of as the biggest mechanized battle in Africa since Germany's Africa Corps was defeated in Tunisia in 1943. We'll hear more about this next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.